All right, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today, we're bringing you a special midweek bonus episode. This one's going to be a little different, as we're covering The House of Sticks by Derek Koonskin. This book releases in ebook format today on August 20th. Today, hopefully, when this episode is going up, we are recording this uh, about a month earlier. But we were given advanced review copies to, uh, you know, to read this and record this episode. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but word on the street is that Mr. Coonskin himself is a listener of Inking Out Loud. So we're heading into <laughs> some pretty new territory here. And uh, I apologize if I butchered your last name. Uh, <laughs> and I will apologize for pronouncing it the exact same way if he did, in fact, butcher it. <laughs> yeah, uh, but as always, I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. Now, let's talk about this book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, it took... How, actually, you know what? Before we get right into it, I do want to ask you how long it took you to read this book. And I don't mean, like, how many hours. I mean, from the time you read the first page to the time you read the last page. What was that time period like? How Was it a week across? Was it a day across? How was uh, today, your pacing? Today is Wednesday. I started it on Saturday, I think. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I've been... I probably would have read it in fewer days, but uh, my personal life has been a little hectic. We've had some, mm, some uh, uh, illness in the family uh, that's taken up some time. But, but yeah, even then, I, I read it over the course of just a couple of days. Damn. So, I'm jealous. Yeah, I, thought, I thought it was a, a very quick book. I should say I'm envious because... No, I am jealous because uh, I read this book since I started working full-time plus again. It took me many, many days to read this book just because I don't really have a lot of time to be reading. And it kind of sucks because I was really, really invested right away. Um, I do have an hour every single morning sitting in the break room where I get to work that early just because I, you know, I carpool with my stepdad, who is the manager. I'm there for an hour in the break room from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. every single morning. And I'm usually alone for that entire hour, so I get the chance to read. And I'm reading this on my phone. But, of course, an hour is not enough to read one hour at a time. And there are so many times I had to put the damn book down, and I didn't want to put the damn book down. <laughs> so, it, it took me, honestly, I think I, I this was about two weeks it took me to read. Um, the last 40% happening all at once today, since, you know, I take Wednesdays off now for the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. But it was, uh, the six to seven hours I spent reading it today flew by. You know, I really, really liked it. Very nice. Yeah, so what we're going to do today, as I said, it's going to be a little different uh, because this is a brand new book and because this is you know, not one of these you know, Brandon Sanderson or you know, Scott Lynch or, or whomever, you know, not a, a super big name author book. Um, you know, what we're going to do is we're just going to do a brief spoiler-free review, kind of our impressions about the book. Yeah. And then we'll let you know when we're going to go into the spoiler section. So you can decide at that point, hey, yeah, I want to check out this book. You can turn the podcast off, go read the book, and come back and revisit it. Or if you don't care about spoilers, you can you can keep going. You know, that's your choice. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, so just to kick things off. What did you think about the book? Like, did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it. I mean, I, I think I'll, I just kind of uh, explained how how much I did enjoy it. I mean, there were times when the science, because, you know, for those who aren't aware, this is a hard science fiction book. There is a lot yeah, of science yeah. in here. And if you're a fan of science, like I am, there's going to be a lot to find and a lot to appreciate. It did affect the speed of my reading. I think this is part of why it took me, again, two weeks 
to read this book from beginning to finish because I found myself having to reread quite a few sections just to just to fully appreciate the level of care that Kunskin put into you know adapting this life on Venus as it is and how in you know a couple centuries in the future we are going with like, we would need to to approach uh, societal issues to to approach personal issues there's a, definitely a lot to be had out of here but it did slow me down I don't have an issue with that I'm already a slow reader as it is I'm looking for the art and the art was there it definitely was there yes uh, I I agree you know I will I will admit when we, you know, when when we were approached with the idea of this, uh, the publisher, you know, sent us an email and said, "Hey, you know, we, uh, you know, we've we've heard about your podcast, and we were wondering if you'd like to review the book and give an honest, uh, you know, an honest shake to it." Um, I I was nervous because a I hadn't you know read anything I, I from this publisher I hadn't heard of the author before and. You know, knowing that the author is a listener of the podcast, so I'm like, oh no, you know, what's, you know, what's going to happen if this is a book like, you know, The Ruin of Kings that we hated, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, or, or even a book that we just didn't like very much. And that was, I mean, that fear went away within five pages. I, I was very pleasantly yeah. surprised uh, about how strong the writing was, how quickly the book captured my attention. And, to be quite honest, I, I've read a fair number of new books, books I'd never read before for the podcast and, and outside the podcast over the last couple of years, and not many of them have drawn me in as quickly as this one did. Mm, no, no. This, the, Foundry Side didn't. Foundry Side didn't. No, it hook didn't. Me this yep, soon. Yep. A Memory Called Empire didn't hook me this soon. You know, uh, even the first, uh, I've, I've fallen in love with the Garrett P.I. Files by Glenn Cook. The first one of that didn't hook me this soon. I mean, I was I was into it, man. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm definitely right there with you. And I remember texting you as soon as I got through, like, the first two chapters, texting you and, and mentioning something along the lines of, you know, how how good I'm finding it right away and how these fears of ours, like, yeah, what if the book is not up to our standard, uh, so so to speak, as it is? But I remember messaging you right away and then being impatient, learned that you hadn't started it yet. Because normally you are whooping my ass in terms of reading. And you're uh, like, I was just, oh, I wanted to hear what you thought. But I also remember at one point asking you, <laughs> I said, uh, no, I didn't ask you. I warned you. I said, I hope you are comfortable with French. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there is yeah. a lot of Quebecois French, specifically Quebecois French, not, you know, Paris, or I should say not France French. I was going to say Parisian. But, um, and, and for someone like me, of course, I am, I, I took French all the way, I'm Canadian, as I've said a few times on this podcast now, uh, I've taken French all the way through grade 12 in high school, and I was raised by a French teacher, so there was a lot for me to, to di digest here that I, that I really appreciated, a certain level of loving science and knowing, uh, at least having a somewhat solid background in the Quebecois French language, there's a certain amount of esotericism that I got to enjoy with this book. So it was it was all the, you know it was it was all the more fun for it. Yeah, and and I very much do not have that, that French background. <laughs> yeah. I I do struggle with it. I you know I can <clears throat> uh, I can read the book comfortably because I generally you know when i read i don't sub vocalize so when i come across french words that i have no freaking clue how to pronounce i you know i can just kind of 
read them and, oh, and not stumble over I'm trying so to not that. Them. Even without French, I'm just so not that. I'm a freaking parakeet. I have to constantly mimic everything I see and figure out how phonetically it works. Yeah, if if I if I read like that, this book would have given me a hell of a trouble. <laughs> I imagine. I, there's just something about French words I just I do not understand how mm. how those sounds come out of those words. Uh, well, you know, I, as, but, as as the resident Canadian here, I'll take it upon myself, and I'm sure you know some listeners have noticed at this point. I'm I I'm going to try and pronounce as many of our French character and habitat and geography names. As I can. I will not do it perfectly. I haven't taken French, like I said earlier, <laughs> since 12th grade, which itself was 10 years ago. But it was through 12th grade, you know. And like yeah, I said, yeah. I was raised by, my mom's a French teacher, so I, I won't be hopeless. Um, uh, but I, I am fully aware, I want to say this, <laughs> and I'm constantly reminded by some of my friends that I come off sometimes as an absolute pretentious prick when I make a point to enunciate in proper French. But for this <laughs> for this particular discussion, I'm just going to say, je t'aimerais. I'll give it a shot. Uh, Out of respect for the author, my countrymen, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, well, I'm I'm gonna apologize in advance for any uh, French purists who are listening to this episode because I am gonna mangle some of these. Words. You know, I think I have a feeling that they're gonna be a little more offended with mine since I since mine's gonna be like almost correct. Yours is just gonna be, I think, if I'm if I know you, just very clearly anglicized, you know, comfortable flowing phonetic pronunciations, whereas I'm going to sit here and try to do it and fumble it in very specific points that I'm sure <laughs> others are going to pick up on. So, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as far as, you know, just the book itself goes, you know, moving beyond the French, hmm. I I appreciated the, the hard science fiction aspects of it. I don't read a lot of hard sci-fi, but I have found... When I do, it, it tends to hit more than it misses for me. Uh, you know... Even when it's like pseudo hard, it's pseudoscience, you know, uh, but there's at least the technicality of explaining how some of these things work. Yes. Theoretically, um, you know, a lot of both the hard science aspects of this book and the kind of the political, the, the political landscape of the solar system reminded me a lot of my favorite science fiction series of all time. And that's the gap cycle by Stephen R. Donaldson. Um, uh, uh, there were multiple points in this book where I was just struck by how vividly it reminded me of scenes in the Gap Cycle, and and I really liked that. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's not it's not hard sci-fi in the way that you know you're going to get with a a Samuel Delaney book where you have like a, a three quarter page equation. You know, like you don't you don't have to read through that, but there is a lot of very dense description of how these habitats work and, and how they navigate around Venus and things like that, that uh, aren't the easiest things, concepts to wrap your head around. But I, I, I felt by the end of the book, I had pretty decent mental images and, and understanding of what was going on with them. So I, I thought it was well done, you know. Excellent. Awesome. Um, I think that's all about all I want to say that I can say without getting into spoilers. Well, so without getting into spoilers, I just have um, I, I just have a couple of overarching points on writing style and on uh, character. All right, and all right. that is um, the the prose in this book is strong. Mm. Uh, the dialogue is natural. Uh, the the way he works in the French with the English uh, flows very well for me. 
Um, I've read some books, you know, that that try to do something like this, and they either go way, way overboard with the foreign language, or they spoon feed you, where every single time somebody says something in, you know, Spanish or French or German or whatever, it's immediately translated for you in English right after, and he mm. rarely does that in in this book. And the only times he did do it, I appreciated it because it was, it, you know, it was a more complex sentence that I couldn't easily pick up the meaning from context or from my, you know, just, uh, you know, Latinate roots that you can kind of parse out. Yeah. Uh, so I appreciated that. And then, and then the characters overall, very strong, very believable characters, uh, well-rounded, dynamic, uh, just, just a, a solid book overall. I agree with, I think, every word that just came out of your mouth. <laughs> yeah, like so, you know, if you if you just listen to us talk about that, and and that sounds, you know, hard science fiction might up might be up your alley. Uh, definitely go check it out. Uh, as I said, we should be releasing this episode on August twentieth, the day the ebook releases, and I would recommend picking it up because it's a good read. No, definitely is, definitely and, is. Uh, and so now we are going to go into the spoiler discussion of this book and. We're, you know, obviously we're switching things up by having me do the <laughs> intro. That is because Rob, with his m much stronger grasp on French, is going to be doing the synopsis. Hmm. <laughs> I, would, I would argue stronger is a relative term, as I'm about to demonstrate. So let's get into it, shall we? Yes. Okay, so in Kunskin's newest novel here, we pick up in the atmosphere of Venus, of all planets, and we're in the 23rd century. Mankind has spread to loosely inhabit other planets and moons in our solar system. Our main characters, as well as, from what I can tell, literally every other soul on the planet, they're all descendants of the future Quebecois French. About 4,000 in number total on the planet. And they're spread across dozens of floating habitats through various layers of the Venetian atmosphere. Our primary characters are members of the Daquion family. So we have Georges Etienne and his son... His sons, I should say, Jean-Yud and Pascal, we'll get more into that later, as well as the boy's cousin, Alexi, who have found themselves quite literally scraping a living aboard the shoddy vessel called the Cosapscale de Profondeur, along the exceedingly dangerous bottom layers of the atmosphere. You know, and they're living their lives in constant peril to gather rare resources, which include metals, to trade in the black market. And this is all as a result of the Daquillon's family decision not to abort what was Venus's first Down syndrome baby. Uh, Georges Etienne's other children, his oldest two, Marthe and Emile, they're grown and they're living their own lives on the Cosapscale de Vent, and they're learning that their own habitat has just been doomed for scrap, and their lives are soon to be appended as they're forced to move to other stations. So, on the surface of Venus, however, on the hellish you know, surface, there's a strange phenomenon. There's a phantom wind far too direct and far too concentrated to exist at surface level, theoretically. So they probe the surface in some questionably maintained equipment, and the Daquillon family discover that there is a strange cave where the wind is howling at over 90 atmospheres and under more than oven-baking temperatures. Uh, so, further exploration reveals that the camera and the instrument data show not only several apparently alien artifacts, but there is a wormhole beneath the surface of Venus. And through this wormhole lies apparently another star system. 
So they gather whatever allies they can. They, this is including members of their own family uh, and soon-to-be downtrodden leaders of a couple other families as well. Pascal and his new family, her new family, the House of Sticks, hatch a daring plan. And what they are going to do is say, to hell with the banks, let's just scrap one of our habitats, build a surface-level base, and we can escape these proverbial chains that we have and, and give our children a far better life for it. So the various members of the House of Sticks, they set to work. Pascal, struggling with now her identity and her burgeoning relationship with Gabrielle Antoine, they focus their combined efforts on engineering to design a base and their protections to live on the surface of, I almost, I almost said Mars, on Venus. <laughs> you know, Marthe gets to work with her political position. She's fabricating the fall of the Cosapscal Devant while risking her life to do so, and she falls victim to a horrible storm in the process. It rips her away from her operation, and it strands her injured, floating, helpless, just miles and miles above the literal hell that is the surface of Venus. And her oldest brother, Emile, realizing her distress, attempts heroically to save her willing even to sacrifice his own life if need be in the process. And eventually, as he hopes to accomplish his goal, he passes out from asphyxia and, and decompression effects. And he wakes up in the hospital on the Bayi Como, learning that his sister has apparently died. And we are left at the end of the book with the remaining members of the House of Sticks learning about Marth's death. And they deal with the grief in their own respective ways, but they're ready to begin rebuilding their their life on the surface of venus so and that's how we end this book yes it is it is quite an adventure yeah yeah it's pretty crazy so, so let's let's dive uh, you know a little deeper into style here uh now that we can take the spoiler gloves off yes uh there are you know a couple of things that really stood out to me about his prose uh one one of which is how well he adapts his his voice on the page uh, to points of view. I picked up on this uh, probably later than I should have, but there there are certain ticks that go with characters. Um, uh, Pascal in particular is very seems to be very cognizant of body things, body language, and, yep, and of yep. course. Uh, he has his own body identity issues going on, and that makes sense. And then what really stood out to me was with Emile, who is a struggling poet, hmm. struggling artist, who has very little confidence in himself. And his points of view tend to uh, include much more use of imagery and metaphor, and and especially <laughs> similes. Yes, uh, but but it's not overdone. It's it's. It, it, it feels very deliberate uh, when he trots out a simile, when, when uh, Kunskin trots out a simile. And they tend to be, you know, very nice. Uh, you know, well-written sentences just uh, helps enrich the points of view. Uh, mm. Yeah, I, I, I think overall he, he's a strong writer. You know, he writes better prose than several of the other authors you know, off the top of my head that we've covered. I mean, we've, I, I can't even count how many authors we've covered on this podcast, but oh God, you know, it's gotta he, be at least 20. Yeah. He, he absolutely belongs, you know, with a lot of these more well-known writers, you know, uh, he's, a, he's a very, very talented writer here. No, I, I fully, fully agree. And 
Emil was definitely uh, his his viewpoints are definitely indicative of that for me. Um, I've already gone through a lot of. I just realized I've actually gone through a lot of my style discussion points in our non-spoiler recap at the very beginning of the show here. Um, but going on with with uh, I just. I do want to expand upon what you just said because I really definitely drew a point to notice the change in Kunskin's narrative voice when he approached characters like Pascal, when he approached characters like Georges Etienne, especially with Emile. I made I have so many notes here on Emile and how the actual style of the prose itself ties into his character and his character's journey. But I think I will save my expanding there for our actual character discussion on Emile. But I do want to say Everything you just said, I noticed, and I made very specific points to talk about because you're absolutely right. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I <sighs> like. I I cannot describe how relieved I am that we can talk about this book in in positive tones. <laughs> yes. I was I was really worried going in. You know, like uh, uh, an unknown author to me, somebody I've never even heard uh, any of my friends reading before. I'm like, you know, what is this going to be like? I have no idea. And and it, it really is a relief that it's like, wow, yeah, no, this guy's good. <laughs> yeah, no, like I, I do want to point out that clearly Drew and I are, would we, we, like, I definitely with myself, I would not claim to like a book that I didn't like. I mean, that's no. I think that's very, very clear with what, you know, a lot of what I've been saying on this podcast about specific authors in the past for the, you know, the, the, the previous 80 or so episodes, if you count bonuses and whatnot. But um, if I had, if, if, if I didn't like this book, I would have just written down less to talk about. And the <laughs> fact that I'm sitting here looking at a note file that is 3,000 words long, I think goes to show that... I did like a lot about this book, and I'm going to have a lot to glow about. There are some there are some things that I'm going to complain about today, mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, I mean, they're trivial. They're just little aesthetic things, and to me, it didn't impact the overall quality of, of the book. So, yeah. there is that. So, do we want to head into some character discussion, then? Uh, I just want to make sure... Hold on. So, uh, da -da -da -da. Yeah, she, definitely. All right. Uh, start with Pascal, I guess, since sure. that's our first point of view. Pascal, Pascal, slash, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, Pas so that was my first question for you, is do you pronounce the names differently? There is, yeah. Okay. Uh, in, it, to my understanding, the masculine, there is Pascal, or just Pascal, and then with the, the added E. In French, a lot of the time, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, you do not pronounce the last vowel if it's an e but uh in this case i would say pascal just to add a little bit of flavor on the femininity of that so only in yeah. in this case just to differentiate because we have a character who goes by both yeah that was what i kind of uh thought of in my head was that it would be like uh before um before the kind of mental transition there I would I would pronounce it Pascal, and then after Pascal, yeah. You know? I, I think in French it would be even closer if if there was any difference at all. But I don't claim to know that for a fact. In my head, I will say like I was just like you were saying. There's Pascal and then Pascal, but I was also being very pretentious in my <laughs> inner pronunciation there as well. So, but you know, I, I to to go into Pascal's character. Um, it's gonna be a little. It's gonna be slightly difficult for me to talk about, just because I don't want 
and anyone listening to confuse my motives or my ideas. But I found myself, first off, really invested into Pascal as a character from the start, as he, you know, at the time being he, can not only uh, be, you know, he's easily considered our main character, but because I'm not too far gone from those awkward teenage years myself, uh, and even more because I found myself blessed with a special needs little sister, who herself is now at 22 years old, it, like, she, like, there's interactions with Jean Yud in particular that had me smiling mm-hmm. oh, yeah. again and again. Uh, I found so much to appreciate with Pascal's viewpoints around Pascal. Um, I could tell right away that Pascal himself had some dark secrets. You know, he, he, he admitted to Maut at the beginning as soon as she showed up on the Cas Pascal de Profondeur that he doesn't even like himself when she was talking to him about what he's into. And that, to me, was the first un- and most obvious, of course, red flag, as I imagine it is to a lot of people. Uh, so uh, I actually highlighted a, a line in chapter three, mm-hmm. right at the beginning. Okay, yeah. Page 22, and, and it was a rust-spotted mirror hung beside her picture so that any of the children could look at themselves and at her at the same time to see her in themselves. And... I think that was when I messaged you, Rob, and I was like, I'm going to call this right now. Hold on. Repeat that again, because I remember you messaging me this, but what line was it in particular that got your attention? A rust-spotted mirror hung beside her picture so that any of the children could look at themselves and at her at the same time to see her in themselves. And this came after he had already, like, kind of intimated how he was not comfortable with mirrors. And then that line, I, I just immediately, I was like, Pascal is trans. Oh, wow. I, I See, made that call. I started, I started to realize something was a little off um, around the third or fourth time that Pascal thought about how ugly he found himself and his obsessive compulsion with shaving yes. constantly. Um, I, I will admit, when, when, when he originally told Mout... Uh, at the beginning that he didn't even like himself I thought it was a just simply if if it can be called simply a depression issue but for me when it was pretty much confirmed was uh, when he tried on his mother's dress oh yeah well that was yeah (laughs) no I mean that that scene was you know neon signs flashing you know like <laughs> right and i and i feel like an idiot that it took neon signs for me to be clued into this and mm. i will admit that i was at first very weirded out by his trying on of his deceased mother's dress um i'm not going to lie i really really misread that i think because hmm. 3 or 4 days ago it was only 3 or 4 days ago definitely wasn't a week ago i watched silence of the lambs and I got oh. some serious Buffalo Bill vibes at this particular moment before I caught myself. I was like, oh, wait, 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 hold on. I'm definitely reading too far into this. Um, or maybe even, like, just some uh, Hitchcock psycho vibes a little bit there. But uh, it, it wasn't long after that, though, that, that the, the whole gender dysphoria issue arrived front and center. And then, of course, everything started to make sense past that. And I realized how much I was misinterpreting this and I was very I I, want to say I was happy for Pascal when he and I say at this point I still say he because he hadn't even confronted his own assigned Mm -hmm. gender yet 
uh, met Gabriel Antoine, and it didn't take long, though, for me to grow bored with these two and their relationship. And this, this right here, <sighs> yeah, may be the most, if you want to call it, negative thing I have to say about my reading of this book. I felt that the relationship between these two was very heavy-handed. I noticed that Gabriel Antoine made like five innuendos one after another all in the same scene immediately following the scene uh where pascal decided that or decided found out that it's possible that she could be a woman and just born in the wrong body but as soon as the next scene arrived and gabrielle antoine was uh, innuendo 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 and i just my first thought i'll admit was oh no like i can i can appreciate this being a central conflict for Pascal's character, but I hope it doesn't push literally all of his, her other problems aside. And following that, just immediately following that, I was a bit disappointed to find that it did. So, I... I mostly agree with you. Uh, I, I agree sure. in that this was... Uh, that the way that relationship was handled in the early stages of it did feel very heavy-handed. Or and, just contrived, maybe, is the word I want to use. I, I, I wouldn't say contrived, but but really heavy. And the the way uh, Gabrielle Antoine would come on so strong yeah. felt very manipulative to me. Particularly and with so his old rage. I yeah. expected all throughout this book, I expected he was going to betray them. Yes. Oh and, my God! Thank you. And, Me and too. even even at the end of this book, I I still have this lingering suspicion. Like, like, like just... I I don't think he's going to anymore. But there's still that lingering seed of like the way that relationship started felt so weird, like uh, it, it, like imbalanced. Where where we that's, have that's a guy who's clearly yeah. much more imbalanced. experienced, six or five. He's twenty one, right? Five years older, and. Yeah. You know, and then and then you have a guy who's like barely had any interaction with human beings outside of his immediate family in his life, you know, totally inexperienced. And so it felt very manipulative and imbalanced to me. And that that lingers in the back of my mind, even at the end of this book where Gabriel Antoine both his words and his actions seem to indicate no, this guy's like genuinely, you know, trying to do right by Pascal. And, and I think... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, and, and so I can... I can see uh, to, to like the kind of second half of your point how Gabrielle Antoine starts to dominate Pascal's inner landscape yes. throughout the middle of this book. And it, that that annoyed me a little bit, just like narratively speaking. I, I that wasn't what I was interested in yeah. as much. Yeah. And I wanted more things you. about yeah. him, like developing the engineer side. And we get more of that toward the end. But uh, it also makes sense. It, this is this is a real character here because this is a completely inexperienced young man who is discovering his first romantic relationship. Of course, it's going to dominate his thinking. When I was a, you know, a 13, 14 year old kid who like just got his first girlfriend. Yeah, she dominated my thinking, too, because like, yep. I was a hormone riddled, yep. you know, inexperienced teenager. And 
it, so it made sense even as it like from a, a detached reader's perspective annoyed me if that makes no, sense I, yeah <laughs> um so in response to that i'd say like I, i'm glad that i'm glad that you brought that up because i do want to also point out that i think there's something to be said about pascal's awareness of the situation and the fact that she continues to ask him is that a line that you keep using on the upper atmosphere boys like like we, we, conti yeah. we continuously get the sentiment that pascal is kind of on to him and his tricks so she, you know she's not he's not quite entirely um taken by this by this idea of Gabriel Antoine until we get the next few scenes. And this is, this is again, where I started to become a little disenchanted because, as you said, and I totally agree, Gabriel Antoine became a centerpiece of everything as far as Pascal was concerned. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a little frustrating just because of how predictable it was. As soon as we met the guy, which, again, I'll reiterate, was immediately following the fact that Pascal found out that she could in fact just be a girl and it, it, out of here of course i'm going to switch solely to pascal the woman you know uh gabrielle antoine immediately starts flirting and not subtly not subtly in that any happened way. after he had the conversation with marth i thought that was way before i think it actually was before yeah you're i right. thought that happened you know what like, no i think you're right you're, i think the, you're right like, actually I think I wrote that down incorrectly there. I'll I'll I'll, I'll retract uh, a portion of that. <laughs> but this 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 flirting that starts e immediately. It was it was not subtle. It was innuendo after innuendo oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. after innuendo after innuendo. There was no subtlety to it. I couldn't help but, as an experienced reader, you know, looking at this not as um, someone looking just for an escape, but somebody looking to cover this on an intellectual level, I couldn't help immediately start looking at Antoine as a plot device, you know, yeah. as, a, as a way for Pascal to explore her own conflicts. Mm -hmm. But chapter 43, and I want to point this out, chapter 43 is where I started to get a little bit frustrated with Pascal as a character. There was, in chapter 43, there was, in my opinion, I just want to say this again, there's, in my opinion, there was no character development in this chapter, nor were there any new threats or any new mysteries to balance the fact that there was no character development. From the first sentence to the last, it was the same scene. And I, I again, I have to give a hard admission that the thought of a 21-year-old mm. guy saying to a confused 16-year-old, you're worried about me being your stepdaddy, in a wink. Oh, yeah, that was... I was a little, I was a little taken aback by that. That was a little yeah. icky. But following that... Since I was so concerned about this dominating the narrative as a whole going forward, I was pleasantly surprised to see that the plot picked back up and Gabriel Antoine fell more into his own place as a character. Pascal mm -hmm. found a certain level of comfort, even though obviously not, not completely comfortable in any way, um, with, with her identity. And it, and it warmed my heart to see especially that sibling reinforcement when Pascal has his her few secret conversations with Mouth. And, you know, Mouth, of course, being the greatest big sister of all time, you know. Um, I was really glad that Pascal got that reinforcement from Jean-Yud first, and then specifically from Mouth afterwards. So, this is pretty much the last of anything negative I have to say about this book. Everything going forward is going to be glowingly positive. <laughs> I, I may have a couple of more critical things, but but generally I agree that was my biggest issue with the book. 
Okay, excellent. I'm Do glad that we agreed on that. Do you have anything more about Pascal? Absolutely nothing. Okay. Uh, let's let's move to Mark. Okay. Because mm, right. she was my favorite character in this book. Oh, okay. Uh, you know what? I'm not surprised, and, but it, I was for a and, second there. And just... <clears throat> I don't know if this is me just being super suspicious or me being in denial because she was my favorite character, but I, I think she lived. Oh, it's obvious. I, I think, thought we were about to have a whole 10-minute conversation about how obvious it was that she lived. Yeah, like... She she was clipped onto him. They found her. She's in some like bank prison somewhere, and she's thank you. Yes, to, yeah. yeah. Our our predictions are so in line. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> we should probably also add. We'll we'll add in the description that we're not going to censor this episode going forward as well. There's a lot of cursing that is part of the flowery prose that I like on Emil's well, part, and I think, of course, there's a lot of French I think cursing. We should, we should censor the English cursing. And then you'll just have to pardon our French. <laughs> oh, man, you had to. You totally had to make that joke, didn't you? Okay, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Okay. Um, but, I agree. But, yeah, no, with, with Marth, I, I loved her competence. She, in, in, in temperament and personality, she very much is more similar to me than any of the other characters, except for perhaps Georges Etienne. Uh, but he's he's also like he's got more of the obstinate, you know, unwilling to to even slightly budge on on his stances thing going on. Uh, but she she was the most engaging character for me by a lot through like from the beginning of the book to the end. Mm. Yeah, no, um, I loved Marth. Like she's such an amazing character, both as a human but also as uh, you know uh, also on page like her, her this badass attitude that she has first off to me really endearing she's so dedicated to her family despite this chained sort of potential that she has to me she read a lot like an army officer she has a no b approach to a lot of her family's problems in which for her are all of her problems um and I found it also endearing that, like her father, she has the mouth to match it. You know? papa. <laughs> oh, man. I just... Ah. The, the, the French cursing in this book is on point. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely... Uh, I, I think there was only one curse that was explicitly translated... Um, I can I can probably provide the majority of the translations you and have. That was uh, that was for the uh, you have. for the f bomb. Um, um, yep. And and I of course I can't even remember. what I actually the... learned that one. Believe it or not, I didn't know because as far as I knew, it was a different word that started with B. But I think this was osterie, something like that. It was O. It began with like an O I O I S something. Yeah. Oh, I'm a little embarrassed now that I can't remember it. You know, and believe it or not, believe it or not, for those, just as a bit of uh, behind the scenes <laughs> humor here, I walked upstairs at the beginning of the podcast, right right before we started going live, and I said, Mom, because she was there in the kitchen, I said, sorry for the, the awkward and, and random question, but en français, how do you say f*** you? <laughs> and she wasn't able to tell me. She was like, you know, I, I honestly don't know. But I'm, but, you know, we can, we can assume that. This is it. 
Yeah, but so so things like uh, Tabarnak, I I don't know. Ta- okay, listen, Tabarnak is one of the worst things you could say in French. Oh. It is in the same word. It is filthy and it is sacrilegious as well. It has ah. a very heavy religious connotation. So I I wondered about that if there was a a common root with Tabernacle. Yeah, there yeah there is. So okay. I can confirm that. Yeah. <laughs> In French, I mean, I used to play Halo Three way back in the day with a bunch of Frenchmen, and a lot of the times, after you know getting killed, I would hear Tabarnak, and I would know, <laughs> I know, I know, the frustration I could hear it in their voice. It's it's probably the worst word I think that I know that you could say in French is Tabarnak. Wow. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> it's the it's the French word uh, equivalent of the C word. Oh, oh the C word in our. Ostia. Oh. Yeah, O S T I E. I believe that is oh, that was the S bomb. Osti. Yeah, something like that. I apologize for butchering it. I'm sure. Yeah. But uh, going back to Mouth, <laughs> you know, like Emile, she was one of my two favorite members of the Dequion family. She was just such a badass. She was so committed to her family. Um, she felt real. She was she was visceral to me, and I, I really I really was excited every time I saw her name at the beginning of a chapter. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Like I said, she was my favorite. Uh, mm-hmm. Going to Emil, I did not like him for a lot of this book. I started turning around on him by the end, but I I really did not like him. I I had contempt for the guy. Uh, and okay. but a lot of that was because of his association with Therese and that group. Um, they reminded me very much of the the Beat generation, the the Beat authors like Allen Ginsberg, you know, Jack Kerouac, that group. Okay, so where... you mess you said this during our text messaging while we read this and I told you I had no idea what you're talking about so please expand upon that what the hell is this movement you speak of so there was a small group of writers who met at Columbia University if I remember correctly during the 1940s and they 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 formed friendships and kind of a community and and all wrote books and poems about the same kinds of things that Therese's group was involved in. Uh, they, they searched for spiritual meaning in life in a very uh, drug-fueled, free love kind of way. Uh, there, there's some... Hippies. Some, uh, they, they influenced... This lead to the hippie movement. They influenced the hippie movement. It, okay. When you get into the 60s and the 70s, the hippies adapted a lot of beat... Uh, cultural signifiers. Okay, see, I'm um, learning right now. Nice. The the beats were influential in the development of um, like publishing censor censorship laws in the U.S. Uh, there were a couple of books oh, that wow. they wrote that were a cool distinction, extraordinarily controversial. Um, that that you know w- were the subjects of legal battles in the U.S. and and ultimately paved the road for um, more overtly profane content being published in books. Um, there, there is one in particular called Naked Lunch, 
by William Burroughs that was uh, the center of a lot of controversy. Okay. But but anyway, they so the the beats there was this group um like I said Allen Ginsberg, William Burroughs, Jack Kerouac, um you know, uh Herbert Hunky, uh there was one more uh, I can't remember, but they they met at Columbia University in New York City in the 40s and in uh in the 50s they all kind of migrated to San Francisco and became involved in like the San Francisco like renaissance uh and and their the the beatniks as they were called like they they kind of expanded more toward um just general art instead of just writing okay but yeah. they were defined by by this idea of searching out a spiritual quest Using uh, you know psychedelic drugs, yeah, yeah, um, and and free love, altering state of mind, you know, orgies, sexual liberation, things like that, um, gotcha. and that is Therese's group to a T. I mean, they're yeah, they're young, wild artists searching for meaning in in a, you know a, a a sea of NUI, basically. <laughs> uh, okay. And and I I told you I was expecting the whole time for there to be some kind of reference dropped to like Howl or Naked Lunch or On the Road yeah, or did, something, yeah. you know one one of the the cornerstone texts of the Beat Generation and it never happened but but those parallels are still there for sure and uh, you know this is just you know my sensibility I I I find a lot of that kind of foolish. Uh, Therese endlessly frustrated me, and it frustrated me that Emile was so drawn to her when yeah. he, he yep. could be so much better than what she represented. She was so self-destructive and just so foolish with things, uh, and, and especially when when she had that final flight, you know, and yep. and opens her suit in the middle of an, a literal cloud of acid rain. And then in the hospital, you find out later, she didn't just OD that one time. She had OD'd four times over the last two years. You know, she, she was actively trying to kill herself and, and, and sapping the medical resources of the community to the point where they're like, look, we're just not going to treat her anymore because this is ridiculous. You know, yeah. there are people who want to live that we would be better spent using these resources for than this woman who keeps trying to kill herself. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a certain level of pragmatism that if one has, it it leads to exactly what Drew says and what I exactly agree with. Um, you know, with with Emile's character here, everything involving his relationship with Therese was exactly the same for me. It was endlessly frustrating. I could tell from the beginning that not only was she going to be bad for him. But I knew that there was going to be a stunt. I knew once I saw this first baptism of oh, theirs. That, so that first seed, man. I, I like we we got a couple of chapters, you know, from from Pascal's point of view, and then from Marth's point of view, and then we get that Emile chapter with the 
opening the bay it door. Was, and it was a little disturbing. Oh my gosh, um, I was just, I was like, man, I thought I knew what kind of book this was going to be, and I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, like, in, like obviously at the beginning, Emil's viewpoints they disturbed, like they disturbed me in the way that I imagine it's meant to disturb readers. There, like, Therese is a bit of a lunatic, but yeah, and this is where I, this is where Drew, hang on to your ass for a second here, and this is going to sound stupid, but. This viewpoint where they sound, where, where they worship Venus by removing their helmets. Yeah. There was a small part of me that was a little bit envious. Hang on, I don't mean to make this sound like some sort of sense of sadomasochism, but or I just say I should just say masochism. But I, like, like I wouldn't choose Venus for a stunt like this. But damn it all, if I'm not curious as a human to know what space itself really feels like. I learned sometime in my late teens that, technically speaking, the cold vacuum of space is easily survivable. If you're exposed to it just for less than a minute, 30 yeah. seconds or less. If, I've got some really stupid items on, on my bucket list, dude. So, like, like so swimming over the Marianas Trench, experiencing the vacuum of space just for a few seconds. It's technically the natural state of our universe. It sounds so stupid to say it, man. Well, but if so I had a billion dollars... Kind sorry, of go ahead. Describing here reminds me of and again, pardon my butchering of the French pronunciation. <laughs> uh, L'Appel du Vide. It's like the Wait, call what? of the void. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the call vide. of the void. Yes. Yeah. And, and that, guess, it, it is a case, real phenomenon that some humans experience. You know, this, this like inexplicable compulsion to do something. But this is not the, deadly, this doesn't, you know, this is not the call of the void because this is easily survivable. But, easily but this, survivable. Is, this is what Therese is experiencing. No, she's no. This is Therese is experiencing something far worse. She's experiencing suicidal tendencies that she she wants to die. And I I could tell this very early on in Emil's viewpoints. I was like, she's going to do something insane oh, that yeah. he's going yeah. to have to come to grips with after he loses her, literally or figuratively. I could see this is coming. I like and once all this was was revealed in the hospital as Emil is coming back to consciousness and being treated himself, mm -hmm. I was like, yep, this is pretty much exactly where I saw it going, you know? Yeah. And, but so after that kind of key hospital scene where, where he discovers more of the truth of Therese and, and he starts to move on, uh, I appreciated him much more. I thought that his, yes, his personality as a writer began to assert itself more. And I don't know if this was just because I didn't pick up on it as much early on, or if, if there was something here, but I feel like there were more metaphors. There was more colorful writing in his chapters after he made that transition. Oh. Interesting. Interesting. I I didn't consider that because I had, I'd already been onto it beforehand. Um, but, you know, Emil is a character that I have the most written about to talk. Um, I mean, I've been open before a little bit on the show. Obviously, I make wisecracks about having a bit of an alcohol problem myself. You know, and 10 years ago, that would have mystified me. But in a lot of ways, I could tell that in, in this book, Kunskin has done his homework. Um, you know, f for context, I'm a, right now I'm a full-time production welder. I like fantasy books, intellectual reviews, obviously, computer building, video gaming. I'm in a shop full of dirty-ass 40- to 50-year-old mechanically inclined bearded dudes who never shower and i feel at times like a like a pipe wrench being used as a hammer i can self-insert with somebody who feels unused unfulfilled you know 
turning to the bottle just for a bit every day just to keep you sane. And more on top of this, I'm also an eldest sibling. You know, and, and, and many, many years ago, yes, I used to fight with my parents. I was moving in and out of the house between the ages of 14 and 16 several times. I've gone through periods of many months to many years in cases without talking to my siblings. And I've felt that awkward return, this pleasant surprise at seeing them taller. And, I, I, and that kind of feeling of hope that you can salvage the, you know, any impression. They, that they have of you still and I can help them maybe steer towards their hopes and dreams and you know hope that they don't hate me for the person that I used to be I'm not trying to turn this into a Dr. Phil episode here <laughs> but what I'm saying is that at 28 years old and being able to say happily that my relationship with my family's never been better Emil flying around with Pascal and trying you know to to convince him to move upward I felt that when Pascal decides he can't indulge Emile's curiosity about their working on, sorry, but what what they're working on, I can feel that kind of awkward pain. And so, despite some of Emile's rather questionable viewpoints and his actions, I haven't found myself rooting for a character in this way. I think ever before, like I was, I was there, I was invested, and I was really, really happy with his narrative in the book as a whole you know it was disturbing at times obviously but this rescue at the end like i'm so happy that he ended up where he was maybe not with what happened that's horrifying and it's such a bummer yeah um but seeing him get to make that action seeing him return to mouth and, and trying to rescue her contemplating their past like in his mistakes as he's struggling there in the atmosphere to save his sister's life it felt right it felt poignant. I just, I don't know. Emil with me resonated on a level that I really don't see a lot. So I really liked his character as, as a result of that. Interesting. Very interesting. So I don't have like a whole ton of other uh, character notes, uh, but I that do have my a last... question oh, wait, about, do you think going into the next book, because there very clearly is going to be a next book, um, mm. Do you think we're going to start getting points of view from Marie-Pierre and Gabrielle Antoine? Without a doubt. I, Without that a doubt. was my, my gut feeling as well, that um, as, as some of these characters uh, have progressed along their character arcs, they don't need as much page time in, in their points of view for that and that we'll see some you know the extended house of sticks get a little more prominent going forward um mm. but but yeah overall i i thought the characters were very real um there there were characters that i really disliked but i disliked them because they felt like real people whom i would dislike not because they were poorly written or ham-fisted characters yeah. you know like uh, i i disliked therese the same way i dislike egwene in the wheel of time because <laughs> they feel like real people that i yeah. i know like that that i know and do not get along with that kind of a thing <laughs> so Interesting. uh but yeah so do you have any miscellaneous thoughts or do you want to go into three favorite scenes um, I actually have one character still just to talk about oh, real okay. quickly. I have a few points about Jean Yud. Oh. Right. No character has made me smile as many times in one book Beautiful. as Jean Yud. 
He's so innocent and he cares so much. He tries so hard. In chapter 11, there's a conversation be like with, with Pascal that he has about Alexis, Alexi, pardon my French, being given charge of the Cosapscal uh, de Profondeur. And he comes around and he's grudgingly telling Pascal that he's a good brother. You know, it, it warmed my heart so much. And then, of course, how can I go without talking this scene where Pascal confesses to another person for the first time his deep-seated hatred of his own body and how he wishes he had been born a girl. And this hug that John, that, oh my god, I almost said John Yude. Oh my god, Jean Yude gives him. You can be my sister. Or whatever he said there. If my heart was worn before, it was the freaking core of Venus right here. <laughs> what an amazing person Jean Youth is. I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that I teared up in this moment. Manly tears were shed. Picture me at like something like 6.15 in the morning, sitting in a dirty steelworking shop break room. And I'm sitting here tearing up over Jean Youth being so kind and so sweet. Yeah, yeah. Just some very touching moments with him yeah and, like, and you're right like uh, all the time when when his name was on the page there was a smile on my face yeah there is a, some throwaway lines where we get to appreciate not only his his kindness but his vulnerability mm -hmm. as the respective leaders of the three families they, they this scene i think it was a chapter 45 when they formed their alliance the house of sticks even though they haven't named it yet and there's a moment when marriage is proposed and everything falls deadly quiet and then Jean Youth he's nervous he takes and I quote an uncertain step towards Pascal and I just I wanted to hug the guy yeah I wanted to hug him so badly and I think my favorite moment for Jean Youth was at the end of this same scene when when Marie Pierre realizes that only one person hasn't had the chance to voice their thoughts and with a smile she asks what do you think Jean Youth yeah and he's embarrassed and he like shy. I was just every single so time he's on the page I smile. Yeah, so sweet. Ugh. So that's the end of my characters. I have just nothing but miscellaneous and then favorite scenes. Okay. I have two small points for miscellaneous. Just two little things. Okay. Number one, they're so stupid. Both of them are so stupid. As as soon as Pascal realized the repeating radar pulse was occurring every 0.223 seconds. My first, my first thought was, oh, it's a pulsar. That's dope. Mm -hmm. And then, like, a chapter later, I was pumping my fist in the break room there going, yeah, I f called it. It's a pulsar. That's so interesting. I was so much more invested as soon as I learned that thought. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, oh, sorry. Ahead. You have another... No, no, I was going to go on to my second one. You're going to reply, uh, reply to that one? No, I was going to go on to just one of mine. Um, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so I, I highlighted one one line, but it was it's much more than just this one line. You know, it, it was in um, oh chapter five, very early on, and uh, uh, from Pascal's point of view, and the line was that feeling of dispossession made sense to Pascal, lived in his bones each day, woke with him each morning, and this is when he's talking about how he's sending a probe down and it's seeing. The landscape, this just incredible, yes. unknowable landscape, and I, I, I had to kind of stop at that moment and and sit back and consider how living on another world would do that to you. How it would drive home 
the the minuscule nature of human existence in this just massive unknowable universe and there are several points throughout the book that that create that feeling in me and those were the moments that I think uh, uh, Kunskin's writing shines the most yeah you, you said you had one more uh, miscellaneous point Oh, oh, you're totally right. I did here. Sorry. This is this is probably the dumbest miscellaneous point I've ever had on this podcast. Get ready for it. All right. Hmm. There was a there was a particular word that I really enjoyed when I read it. The wind blew blebs and drops of the acid stone slurry into a collection container in chapter thirty-eight. I just I st- I start for some stupid reason or other. I started laughing uh, when I was when I was welding actually at this point at the word blebs. I looked it yeah. up. It's a word. Blebs. I was like, are you, are you serious? There's something so aesthetically pleasing about that stupid word that I just, I don't know, I laughed for like 15 minutes. I chuckled. It, it, that stupid it feels word. to me almost like an onomatopoeia, even though I don't it, think yes. it is quite. like. I mean, even at work, I have oxidized steel all the time that comes out in bubbles that I have to shatter with a little poke and stuff like that. <laughs> like I can feel, I can just feel the word. I love the word blebs. Nice. nice. That's such a dumb, <laughs> such a dumb point, but there it is. All right, so I'm ready for my uh, favorite scenes. Yeah, let's are. do it. Okay, I'll start then with my third favorite scene. Pascal and Gabriel Antoine on the surface of Venus, chapter 38. I have a, a quote here from Pascal's viewpoint. From a distance, Venus is beautiful and bright, Pascal continued. From space... From Earth, from Mars. But she doesn't want to be touched. She knows she's not beautiful. So she pushes us all away with heat and acid. Because when we finally break through all that, we find out she's not what we thought. She's hideous, and she doesn't want to feel like we're stuck with her. That's a strange way of looking at Venus, Gabrielle Antoine said. At 65th rang, people say Venus hates us, hunts us. She doesn't want to be seen like this because this isn't who she is. Uh, so I, I actually made a note on that same line and I forgot to bring this Did up you? earlier when we were talking about Pascal. About Pascal. Yep. Yep. That is such self projection. That is such a metaphor. I for love Pascal. it. I love it for that reason. So much. Yeah. I, I, it's so self aware in a way. Mm hmm. Even, even as he's struggling with self awareness. <laughs> mm. Like, well, that's what I mean. Like yeah, that's, that's why like I love subconscious. it. It's so, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a, it's such a great moment. Mm-hmm. So that's my third favorite. So my third favorite is the beginning of the descent of. Oh my gosh, and I can't, I cannot pronounce this name. Ka. Oh my gosh. Sorry. Kasapskal Deven. Okay, Kasapskal Devon. Devon. Okay. Devon. Kasapskal Devon. The the early Dave depictions Dave. of it and and the the manipulation of Marth during this scene as as things get more and more out of control where where it starts with her in total control of it she's she's stringing them along with her transmissions and moving away and and executing the getaway and everything and then slowly things start to unravel and and her transmissions back to them start getting more and more real and i yeah. i just i found that so 
intense. The, the transition, the loss of control, the panic growing over the course of that. I, I, I thought that was very, very well done. Mm. Mm. Yep. All right. All right. Are we on number... Yes, we're on number two now. Okay. My second favorite scene is chapter 45 as a whole, where they officially form the House of Sticks. There are so many different plot elements coming together in this scene, and such a a dedicated future outlook that I just... This is where I felt the book really kicked off. Like, I, I was already invested at this point, but when I knew that I was going to finish the book and that I wanted to read the rest of the series was in chapter 45 when they formed the House of Sticks. I love that scene. And I, I also just briefly uh, alluded to this scene a few minutes ago when I said, this is the scene where Marie-Pierre asks jean Youth, what do you think, jean Youth?" Yeah. So, I, I just I love this whole one. Mm-hmm. Okay. My second favorite scene was Marth on the witness stand. Her, oh. her composure and her manipulation... As she okay. she drives this guy to just lose control, standing up and screaming. As she just makes cogent point after cogent point, yeah, keeps her cool. You know, she she just 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 wonderful. And that was one of those scenes that reminded me very much of a, a particular, uh, not not a, a specific scene, but a particular sequence of events in the gap cycle. Um, uh, oh. that was one of them where I, I felt myself like having that excitement growing where I'm <laughs> like, you know, the, the politics here in, in this series have so much potential. I, I am very excited to see where that goes in forthcoming books. Mm. That was a great scene. That absolutely was my favorite scene. My very favorite scene. Number one was Mart and her last thoughts as she kind of tumbles off through the storm and she's injured and she's hanging and she's helpless. She hoped her new family was happy. Marie-Pierre and Gabrielle Antoine deserved it. She hoped Alexi grew up smart and strong and happy. She'd hugged him hard on her last visit. She hoped he never forgot how much she loved him. She'd made peace with Emile as much as, she, as they could make. Peace, brother. <clears throat> and she wished Pa some kind of peace. He tried so hard to give them what they needed. He'd succeeded and they'd grown up all right, but losing her would kill him. Let me go, Pa. And she wished Pascal all that she wanted and needed. Pascal had the hardest path in front of her. Goodbye, little sister. That, though, that, the end of that scene hit me so hard that I sat there and stared at that period for like probably 90 seconds. Yeah, very. I loved how visceral and how personal Kunskin managed to make that final scene for Mart. Now, I don't think she's dead. I absolutely agree with you that she got rescued. She's in the hands of somebody who has ill intent and is going to use her safety to blackmail somebody in the future. And I so badly want to read the future books in this series (laughs) when they're when they're out. But that scene was a 10 out of 10 scene that was awesome yeah yeah very nice so my favorite was the first descent to the surface 
Oh, this was my honorable mention. Damn it. And and uh, Pascal, the the combination of the mystery slowly unspooling before you, the description, the claustrophobia, the I could feel the heat. You know, oh, permeating. you're talking about when he goes down with his father, Jean-Étienne. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought you meant between Pascal and, and Gabriel and Tom. No, okay, no, no. Gotcha. Yeah, the first descent. Yeah, um, when they find the artifact. And, yeah, and then seeing the excitement grow. You know, the uh, with, with Georges-Étienne, he... I sympathize with the guy. You know, like, I, I feel for him. Th- this, is, this is a dude who's lived a very hard life. Who who has had tragedies and felt like he was never going to be able to do right by his family. And finally, over the course of this, he is seeing possibilities spread out before him. And that in combination with how well written it is, to, to where, like I said, you could you could feel the cramped confines of the Bathyscape and the the heat permeating the hull and, yeah. and overwhelming their yeah. suits, you know, capabilities to keep them cool. And then the mystery of, you know, what is this triangle thing? What is going on with the wind? And then suddenly stars. You're like, wait, what? You know, and it, I I thought that whole chapter was just masterfully written. Mm. I agree. This was, yeah, this was my honorable mention. Like, I was ready to bring this up just now, but you you, you nailed it. And you nailed every reason why I love this scene. Um, and this reminded me of a question that I actually had meant to ask you earlier in the episode. Um, before we go into our final draft here and our concluding thoughts, were you a little disappointed at all but not to find out more about this alien artifact and this alien technology, supposedly? I was expecting that to take up a far greater portion of the narrative than it did. And I, I, can, I, I realize this is probably where it's going in the future. But I was like, ah, I was really hoping to learn just a little more about what the hell is actually going on. Yeah. Um, so going into this, I didn't realize it was going to be a series. And, and I was expecting that we were going to get more answers. Okay, and then, fair enough. And then we started reaching, you know, a, a kind of point of no return that... that, that uh, tipping point into the climax and I realized, oh, the climax is them getting the habitat down. The climax yeah. isn't going to have anything yep. to do with the wormhole. That's going to be something for another book. And and I, I made my peace with it, but I admit that I was a little uh, taken aback before I realized that. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm absolutely there with you. Uh, part of me expected this to be a pretty climactic scene about 60 to 70 percent of the way through the book rather Mm -hmm. than the entire uh 75 to 95 percent portion of the book yeah yeah if i'm not mistaken but you know it still was satisfying in its own way particularly with again this this personal grieving that we get from emile and this mystery of what exactly happened to mouth and, of course, the fact that we just haven't had any answers at all about the actual alien technology, or I should say the supposed alien technology, I mean, obviously I'm going to want to read more, so I think it accomplishes its goal in that regard, so. Oh, yeah. Oh, but overall, yeah. yeah, hell yeah, I mean, 
I'm going to read it again. Uh, I'm definitely going to be picking up the sequel when it comes out. I mean, you know, it's... Oh, uh, I mean, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, this was a this was a delightful surprise. And and if if you're listening to this because you just, you know, didn't care about the spoilers or whatever, I I'm going to tell you go go buy the book. Go read it even though you've already heard the story. It's worth reading. Yeah. I can back that up. So, can verify. Let's head into the final draft then. Let's do it. I'll go first. I have the boring choice. Um Today I'm just drinking straight up plain old Smirnoff vodka mixed with Gatorade. Whoa! <laughs> yes, I did that. To be Ooh. very specific, uh, grape flavored G two. Grape, grape and yeah, vodka. it's not too bad. Interesting. It's not too bad. Yeah. I decided to get some vodka since I had some writing to do last week, and for me, I, f- I always find that I write a little better when I have about three to four shots of vodka in me. I had <laughs> the bottle left over, and I had some uh, Gatorade on the side, and I thought, that'll be sufficient for today. Nice. So, nice. Yeah, and, and for those who can't tell, by my s- increased slurring from roughly the, the halfway point of this episode, I may have had a little more than I thought I did. <laughs> I'm looking at this bottle. It's suspiciously empty. Uh, oh boy. Well, I, uh, I I did bring in a beer. I I was disappointed because I thought I had a great beer lined up for it, but it's out of season. Uh, I was going to bring in a local oh? beer from Odell Brewing Company called Cloudcatcher. Oh man, that would have been <laughs> yeah. But uh, but none of the liquor stores I went to had it. I think it was a just a spring seasonal. So, uh, I had to go with a different beer, also sort of local to me, uh, Four Noses Brewing Company in uh, oh uh, yeah we've heard in Broomfield, from, uh, Colorado, a few of their drafts before yeah, and uh, this is more more kind of high level thematic. Uh, it's a it's a German style pilsner, and I will admit this is they say it's a German style pilsner. This has a very distinctly American twist on it. It is very hoppy for a pilsner. Um, but it's good. It's refreshing, as a Pilsner should be. I enjoyed it. Uh, but it, it fits for the uh, the culture, the infrastructure of this society on Venus. It's called Perfect Drift. I like that. Perfect Drift. And if only we had had that, oh. we may still have Mart. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, was that a, was that too dark, too quick? No, no. We just may still have Marth. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure we still. Yeah. No, she's absolutely alive, dude. Absolutely. Yeah, I I would be. I will I be surprised and Good upset. Money, Ten to one. If if she actually died. Um, but I think that wraps up our conversation on the House of Sticks. This has been not a numbered episode, just a, a kind of surprise midweek bonus episode. We'll, uh, I think at this point that you're listening to this, we will have already done another one of these. Um, and I wouldn't expect us to do them all the time, but right. occasionally, you know, when, when we're working on a, a tight schedule like we are right now with, we have, we have our, our Mistborn and Stormlight Archive episodes planned out all the way up to the release date of Rhythm of War. And so we, we can't really afford to bump one of those episodes out to add something in. So we just decided, <laughs> hey, we're going to give you more content. Yeah, uh, no, I, I definitely want to express really quickly my, my gratitude to Derek Kunskin 
to to the author and to the the publishers to give us the opportunity to do this. It was actually really really fun. Yeah, yeah. This was a all around a surprise. I never expected that we would have you know a publisher reach out to us and say, "Hey, do you want a, an advanced review copy to cover on your podcast?" and much less, you know, to have it be from a publisher I'd never heard of before, and I would like the book this much. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, it's uh, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful reading experience. Uh, next up, oh man, I need to actually look at our schedule because when this is coming out is not uh, in our normal uh, sequence of That's events. A good point. Yeah, so next Sunday, when you're listening to this, will be our first Way of Kings episode. So, uh, gear up for that. <laughs> we will oh, be covering man. part one of the Way of Kings in that. Uh, just part one. We'll be doing uh, four episodes for the Way of Kings total. One episode each for parts one through three, and then one episode for parts four and five. So, uh, yeah. As always... You know, check us out on Patreon if you, you know, want to support the podcast. All of that, you know, all the donations we get from there mean a lot to us. Help us keep this thing running, keep the quality up as high as we can get it, because all that money goes to paying our extremely talented artist, Danny, and our very hardworking sound engineer, Rob. Uh, Rob, wow, Pat. What are you? What? Sorry, Hold Pat. on. <laughs> wow. Wow, man, I I haven't even been drinking vodka. Um, I think this is this has been by proxy. You've absorbed some of this vodka. Yeah, I mean, I just I just had a, a measly four point five percent pilsner. Um, <laughs> For wow. you, that's the lowest thing I think you've brought on in terms yeah. of ABV. But but yeah, so so you know, consider supporting the podcast through Patreon. You can get access to a bunch of bonus content. So uh, check us out at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yo. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>